Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. 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 All together. Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Homage to the noble, noble and perfectly enlightened one. Now you do the verse properly, right? You do the mantra before you do the verse. Okay. Namo Sadanto Suche Doya Aladi Samyasamputose Namo Sadanto Suche Doya Aladi Samyasamputose Namo Sadanto Suche Doya Aladi Samyasamputose Do the verse for Beginning a sutra. Wu Shang Shan Shan Wei Miao Fa Bai Chen Wan Jin Nan Zayu Wu Jin Jin Wan De Shou Chu Yan Jin Lai Jin The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million aeons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Namo Da Fang Guang Po Hua Yan Ching. Namo Da Fang Guang Po Hua Yan Ching. Hua Yan Hai Wei Po Pusa. Hua Yan Hai Wei Po Pusa. Namo Da Fang Guang Po Hua Yan Ching. Namo Da Huayan Highway Four Pusa. Namoda Fang Guang Po Huayan Jing. Namoda Fang Guang Po Huayan Jing. Huayan Highway Four Pusa. Huayan Highway Four Pusa. So is all the equipment set up now so I can just go ahead? So I don't have to wear that funny look. Okay, good. Makes me happy.
Okay, uh, tonight we're going to continue with the Avatamsaka Sutra, and we're on, uh, according to Hung Shur, and I hope he told me correctly, uh, but page 7071, we're coming to the close of the third of the Ten Grounds. Is that right? Okay. Um, so some of you were expecting, perhaps, I'm sure, to be here tonight. He's obviously not. Uh, he's been very busy these last week. He just hosted a, uh, a monastic uh, get-together uh, at the City of 10,000 Buddhas, which included uh, Buddhist monks and Christian or Catholic monks uh, being together for almost a whole week, was it? Yeah. Right. So um, it's, it's one of those things that uh, all of us, especially the elder disciples, are trying to continue that Master Hua uh, began. And when he saw Buddhism or the Dharma coming into the West, he saw it coming in a very open and dynamic way and not simply um, to be Buddhist or even Mahayana Buddhist, Theravada or Vajrayana. He wanted to really expand and open it up back to its origins and roots when there weren't any uh, isms and there wasn't even Buddhism. It was just the teaching of Dharma under uh, sages and patriarchs and enlightened beings. And so in coming to the West, he had four, uh, four major ways to express that. One was through the actual continuation of the ordained Sangha, the monastic order. The second one was through translation of the teachings of the text, the Dravidika, into not just English, but hopefully all the languages of the world, both major and minor, uh, even though many of them are disappearing as we speak. Uh, the third one would be uh, the education. Uh, and he firmly believed that the Dharma would take root uh, through and in education, that it was meant for learning, it was a teaching in and of itself, um, not just um, mostly even a religion, but a teaching of awakening and enlightening includes studying all of the aspects of uh, what we would consider education, including the liberal arts and so forth. And then uh, his fourth focus was what we call interreligious, interfaith, um, a broad outreaching into all of the major thought ways and disciplines of modern society, which included other religions, um, but also included uh, areas like science and technology and so forth, to have an interfaith and interface uh, encounter. So what Hung Shu was hosting this last week and people of the City of 10,000 Buddhas put together was a part of that fourth aspect, which was an interfaith and uh, bringing together monastics, uh, not from just the Buddhist tradition, but from other traditions as well, to talk about what they had in common and to sort of shore each other up in this enterprise. Um, and it's probably, in terms of historical, it's very significant. Uh, this hasn't really happened uh, in the past. Uh, it's a new approach. And... Um, it's looking at and furthering probably the oldest living institution on earth. And I say this with some caution, but I think I can be pretty accurate in saying of all the institutions that have gone, 
the monastic community has been one that's been continuous from the earliest periods we know, even sometimes um, dating before there were records up to the present. So it's keeping that alive, but keeping alive in a, in a very broad interfaith way. So uh, when they came back this weekend, they had a lunch and a dinner here. And uh, I joined in at that point. And then as soon as Hung Shur finished with that, he uh, went off to a, what he called the Veggie Conference in LA. I don't know, anybody know what the Veggie Conference is? Huh? Oh, so it's a it's a conference of people who are interested in uh, vegetarianism for different reasons. Some for health, some for moral reasons, some for environmental reasons. Mm. Uh, so that's taking place now, and um, we'll get a report. You'll get a report next week when he comes back. He'll probably have some slides and films and songs and so forth uh, from the veggie conference. So that's where he is, and uh, just before he left, uh, he said, oh, you wouldn't mind covering for me, would you? So here I am. Uh, and we're going to start uh, tonight uh, moving into, and I may, might overlap a bit with what he did. Uh, so I'm going to start at the bottom in English of page 71, the second to last verse. Uh, we'll read it first uh, in Chinese and then uh, translate it. So starting on the left, it's Song Chu Fa Yi Zhi De Fu Qi Jian Suo Abi Gu Wei Wan Fa Gu Jie Neng Shou Ke Kuang Ren Zhong Chu Pu Shi. So. In English, it says, from his first resolution up to Buddhahood, all of Vichy's sufferings in that interval, in order to hear the Dharma, he can undergo much less all sufferings in the human realm. Um, so first resolution, everybody knows what this is? What is the first? This is the, uh, uh, well, Fa yi, right? The, the fa yi. First resolve, first resolution means I'm not going to sit up here all night and just lecture you, so. <laughs> uh, that's the first of the bodhisattva vows, is the vow to, and that comes out of this resolve. So the resolve that he's talking about here precedes those four vows. So after one makes that first vow or resolve, then the four follow from there. What's the first resolve? Sometimes called fa puti shin, hint, hint, hint. <laughs> okay. What does that mean? Balcony can answer too. You guys are sitting up there. It doesn't mean you're removed from answering questions. Fa puti shin means what? Huh? No, it doesn't mean the one who wakes up. No. These are all good answers. 
Oh, where did that come from? <laughs> came from the heavens or the balcony. All right. Okay, it's the resolve for Bodhi. It's the uh, Bodhicitta, it's sometimes called. The uh, the resolution or the um, uh, either resolve or vow. Um, it's often a moment, actually, that's sometimes called an awakening. So when, when someone breaks makes this resolve, it's a spiritually transformative moment, the most important moment in one's life or lives uh, from the Buddhist point of view. It's when you wake up enough to realize that everything of the conditioned world and all the pursuit of greed and anger and so on and so forth, all of this is a false, empty path and that you have a spiritual nature uh, that is incredible. Um, it is the equivalent of the Buddhas. And you realize that you have that potential, you have that capacity, and that, in fact, is the most important and significant thing that you could do with your life, is to turn towards the realization, the cultivation, and the perfection of that. And that's called the resolve for Bodhi, or the resolve to awaken, um, to become fully enlightened. And when that happens, when that moment happens, or it can be a series of moments, uh, or a gradually unfolding of meaning and purpose, where all of a sudden it adds up, it adds up, and all of a sudden you realize this is it. This is what it means to be human, is to reconnect with this deep spiritual nature. And it's a, it's a turning. Uh, in a sense, it's not a conversion to something, but it is a conversion of something inside of you towards this. And you're, everything is different after this. Um, then comes the resolves. I am going to do this. Why am I going to do this? Because, and we see in this passage, because I see that I and all living beings suffer immensely from confusion and delusion and so forth, and we don't know it, and unless somebody brings this forth and helps us stimulate this, uh, I would have been stuck and others will be stuck. So then come the vows to liberate all beings, to sever all uh, klesha, what we call uh, impediments to bodhi, uh, to study all the dharma doors. See, the motive for studying now is is there. It wasn't like before you didn't have a motive. Now you have a motive. It's like, why would you go to medical school? Because you really want to save and help people. Now, because you want to save and help people, you see the need to study the Dharma doors. And then you uh, vow to realize that unsurpassed awakening. So the four vows come out of the resolve. And there's a whole essay uh, devoted to the, the proper way to chest whether you have that Bodhi resolve. And I think Hung Shur has lectured that here or not. Have you lectured the essay on the Bodhi resolve yet? He did last year in Oregon, yeah. If you haven't had a chance of that, you might ask him to do it again. It's a really uh, very concise but uh, beautiful essay on what it means uh, to bring forth this kind of mind or resolve. Um, so this is uh, the, what's called the first, the first. And it's called the first not because it's the first thing that brings you in the door or the first reason you may begin to start holding precepts or meditating, but it's called the first because it is the deepest and most fundamental seed for the full awakening. And that's why it's called the first. And 
when this is done, uh, the Avatamsaka says, between that first resolve and Buddhahood, uh, there is no difference. When you make this resolve, you're Buddha. Now, what it means by that is it's so powerful, it's so strong, it's so free of doubts and second thoughts that it's only a question of time before it comes to fruition. So powerful is this seed. And that's why it says between the, that resolve and Buddhahood, uh, it's just a question of time, and time from the Avatamsaka point of view is irrelevant because the real measure is consciousness. And when your consciousness is in this space, then time and place cease to be significant. There is no time, there is no place. Every time is the same time, every place is the same place. Because the continuity of what's holding you, driving you now is this Bodhi resolve, and it doesn't have any time or space connected to it. If this is making sense. So it's a really, it's a deep psychological, spiritual uh, reorientation. And that's why coming with resolve comes a sort of fearlessness and the fearlessness is associated with the fact you know, I have made this resolve, this, this resolve is eternal. It, it's never going to end, and it doesn't matter how long it takes. So even the thought of death uh, is not produced the same kind of fear as before because you know there's something holding you. There's some continuity, there's a string that continues from life to life that's very, very strong. And we're going to see this in the passage tonight when it says, on the next thing of undergoing rebirths, um, that fear is now gone. And it's gone not out of so much a faith, but a deep sense of I've, I've, I've hooked into the ultimate uh, path. I've hooked into something that is so deep it's beyond even conditioned existence. And I will come and go, but I will come and go with clarity, without confusion, uh, and I will have mastery over my destiny because now this vow is sustaining me. So it's, it's a really very powerful turning. Um, and it can happen to anyone at any time. Sometimes it happens to people who aren't even cultivating. You know, it's just a stage in their life and something. Gets, sometimes it happens to people during retreats and meditation sessions. Uh, some people it happens to while they're bowing. Uh, sometimes it happens to people with they face a traumatic event in their lives and that traumatic event both shocks and wakes them up to something and all of a sudden things turn around um, sometimes you can see it across traditions of different degrees uh, the famous song amazing grace some of you know that song amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. I'm not going to sing it because this would put you into the Avicii sufferings, <laughs> which is the next line. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, and now I see. Uh, this was written by a, uh, a ship's captain who was a slaver. He would carry slaves from Africa into the New World. And in one of those voyages, he, he, he woke up to the, the wrongness of doing this, and he completely turned his consciousness around and this song, which is a song of awakening, if you will, came out of that experience. Now, that wasn't necessarily the Bodhi Resolve, but it has a quality of a totally 180-degree turn from something you've been doing previously to something else. Uh, so the Bodhi Resolve is the first realm. And he says, from that time up to Buddhahood. And again, uh, I want to stress that in one sense, this is talked about in the text following as a long time. 
a long time. But in the deep level of consciousness, it's no time at all, because it's all the same time. So this is sometimes said mm, from the time the Buddha made his first resolve and his realization of Buddhahood, how much time passed. Now some of you who've had like Buddhist catechism or whatever that might be, you should know this answer. How long? Three kalpas, but not just three kalpas. See, three kalpas is inconceivably long, but that's not long enough yet. You've got to put an adjective before kalpas. What kind of kalpas? Big kalpas, yeah. In Sanskrit, it's called samkhya kalpas. I once calculated this. <clears throat> um, I'm not very good at math, but I, I sat down and worked this out, and it's, it's 10 to I don't know how many powers. Anybody work this one out? Now, usually I like you to unplug here, but if you have a calculator, you can work it out. Look up what a culpa is, and I think a culpa is like 10 to the 4th or 5th or 6th. And then you have a, that's a small one, then you have a medium, then you have a great, and then you have three asamkhya great culpas. So it turns out to be uh, a really long time. Okay? But the text also says, although it's, it's a really long time, between that time when the Buddha made that resolve and becoming, he never wavered and never retreated. So sometimes in one tradition, there's a body of text in the Tripitaka, I mean in the, um, in the divisions of the teachings, called the Jatakas, the Jataka stories. Um, and I've used those in the past. Uh, I thought they were mostly for children, but adults like them a lot. And I read them a lot. Before I go to bed, I'll read a Jataka story. I'll read myself a story before I go to sleep. And I read the Jatakas. Uh, and the Jatakas are the, the past life stories. They're called the stories of the past lives of the Bodhisattva. Now, there's only the, the Bodhisattva because this is also shared by the Theravada tradition, which the Bodhisattva path is only limited to the Buddha became uh, Shakyamuni or Siddhartha before he became a Buddha. In his past lives, he's called the Bodhisattva. And so the Jataka is this story of the past lives of the Bodhisattva before he became a Buddha. In other words, from that first resolve of the Buddhahood. And they're fascinating because you'll see that the Buddha, before he becomes a Buddha, makes his resolve, goes through many paths, appears in many realms. And many of the stories, uh, he appears as an animal. And it's a story about an animal or a ghost or a spirit uh, and so on and so forth. So it's... Um, However you look at it, there's a lot going on between the resolve and the realization of Buddhahood. Um, also what's going on, and if I could get more immediate, when you make this resolve, internally in every which way, you're so different you feel very vulnerable. So I'm trying to describe what goes on. You're feeling vulnerable because all that you held to be familiar and true now is just jettisoned. And so there's this kind of openness, uh, uh, almost like a childlike openness, because for you're a new person. And all the familiar things that you relied on in the past, including your guile and manipulations and worldly skills and everything, just sort of drop off. You see them as not only irrelevant, but absolute impediments to your spiritual development. And so you feel this vulnerability, you feel this kind of unsureness, 
even though something is sure and burning deep inside you, your, your ordinary ways of being feel unsure and uncertain. And so this is this wonderful beginning state. Um, and what happens is, in a very real way, everything in your life starts to change. And you don't, it's not happening because you're taking some ideology and imposing it on your life, but rather you're, you're listening to your heart, if I can use that word, the this, this sin which is the heart-mind, which has made this resolve, and it becomes like a new compass. And that compass, then, is what you steer by. And it's very reliable and very sure and very clear. And it leads you into changing everything or a lot about the past, including friends. All of a sudden, you'll find that you're drawing near to different friends than you did before. It can result in a change in career, uh, that you were doing one thing and now you're moving into something else. Uh, it can result in a change in diet, buying and consuming patterns. Uh, the words you use, you start to review everything you do with the three karmas, body, mouth, and mind, and everything starts to get scrutinized through the light of this resolve. And so you're, you're realigning all the priorities and everything in your life in a very natural way because you're gravitating now, you're tending towards this bodhi. So on one hand, the, the, the vulnerability you feel is compensated by the strength you feel in knowing that this is right. And so you go forward, and you won't get a lot of necessarily support from <laughs> people that knew you in the previous, because, like, what's wrong with you? You're different. Why are you eating this way? Why don't you want to go hang out here? Uh, how come, you know, when we're all getting stoned, you kind of walk out, you don't want to do all that, blah, blah, blah. What's wrong with you? But there's another group of people you'll draw near to will say, hey, welcome home, it's good to have you back. And you'll start moving into a different kind of sense of family. And so you'll start to develop Dharma friends as opposed to just ordinary friends. And Dharma friends are very different. So this is the beginning of a group. This is the beginning of a, of a community of spiritual practitioners that support each other. And when you find these Dharma friends, that's all you have in common. It's just Dharma. And when this happened to me, especially under my teacher, who gathered in many people with this resolve, there's no way you could look at who was there and say, this made sense. <laughs> Ethnically, culturally, um, age-wise, um, intelligence, background, the only thing that made sense is everybody shared one thing, which is love of Dharma. In every other way, it was what uh, Kurt Vonnegut calls a granifaloon. A, a p group of people coming together that have nothing in common. <laughs> and he says that makes up most of society. We're, most of us go from one granifaloon to another, you know, congregations of people of which we have very little in common and we can't figure out why we're there, but there we are in these groupings. So you move away from that into this grouping of deep familiarity um, past all the superficial differences in, in, in Dharma. This is, this is what this is doing here. So... Even the Avicii sufferings, if that were the case, are not enough to deter one. Avicii means uh, it can mean endless, but it means basically without interruption. Without interruption. What do you have? Do you have some notes there that you're looking back on? 
You wrote it down like two weeks ago, <laughs> and it's gone. Yeah, it was interrupted. So it means a kind of hell. Uh, now, some people are going to get nervous and say, I came to Buddhism, now you're talking about the hells. I had that stuff before, that's why I'm not here. I don't want to talk about the hells, you know. Um, when I was a kid, I was told if I didn't behave, I'd go to the hells. And blah, 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 blah. I know that whole story, okay? Uh, if I was really good, I'd go to the heavens, and then I started looking around and said, oh, these people are going to heaven, I don't want to be there, and blah, blah, you know. <laughs> I don't want to go down this road too much, you know, here, but uh, Buddhism does talk about hells. Okay, so the question is, um, are they real places, or are they just states of mind? And it, correspondingly, is the pure land a real place, or just a state of mind? And... Uh, once, one of the young monks asked my teacher that question, said, you know, are they real places or are they states of mind? And he said, yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes, they're both real places and they're states of mind. And in fact, if you look at the deeper teachings of Buddhism or the teachings of awakening, there's no difference. Every place is, in fact, a state of mind. And every state of mind is, in fact, a place. I'm really suggesting this to think about this. You think we're in a place here, but we're in a shared state of mind. Okay? Now, we reify it, and we identify it, and we think that this is a place, but this is no more a place than a heaven or a hell. And you can walk out of this place and be in yet another place just by going out that front door, and that place is just as a state of mind as this place is. When the moment comes when one passes from one life to another or one is born into one life or another, if you could remember, which most of us don't, you would see when you've gone from this place to this place, from intermediate to birth or from birth into what we call death, suddenly the place you were in, which seemed so real, is gone. It's just gone. It's not there. It evaporates. And all that is there is this new place. It's that fast. It's not like... It, it's truly like just somebody would turn off the lights here, and this would be a different place. If we really turn the lights off right now, there'd be a different place. And that place would be your consciousness. That's what happens at death. And what seemed to be real and whatnot is is just, it's not even like a dream, illusion, bubble, shadow. It's not even got that much substance to it. So consciousness is, in fact, our place. And if you look at really deeply in Buddhist psychology, it's saying the interaction with our consciousness, with the objects around us, creates a realm that we select and, and construct. And we leave out other things. And so we're constantly moving from realm to realm and we're constantly constructing realms just as we set up our apartment or our house and create a space. And you go into somebody else's apartment or house, you realize that's a space created by their mind, their sensitivities, and so on and so forth. But in a more deep sense between the objects of senses and the, the sense organs and the consciousness that links that, we are constantly creating realms. And that's what the Avatomska is talking about. We are mutually creating realms or places with which in we live, and they mutually intersect and penetrate, and none of them are exactly the same. You're in a realm that is uniquely yours, and it overlaps a little with mine now, 
When we're apart, you don't even think about me in my realm. And you're only thinking about because I'm blabbing up here. So there's kind of some interaction going on between your realm and mine. And as soon as you leave here, you go to another realm. And then you go to another realm. You go to another realm. And you realize as you're going to the other realm, you're walking past people who are also in their other realms. <laughs> and there's just realms upon realms upon realms, the Albatross describes, mutually interpenetrating without obstruction, yet completely distinct and whole unto themselves. This is called the Dharma realm. And it's made from consciousness. You can shift your consciousness and your realm shifts. Your relationship shifts. Everything realigns again. But these are all interactions with consciousness. So in fact, when it says the hells are both a place and a state of mind, it's actually touching on that reality. You can, in this present moment, make choices and decisions that will make your life hellish. Okay? We all know that. You can look around and watch. People come into this world out of their mother's womb, and everything's pretty open at that point. And within a very short period of time, some people go this way and some people go that way. Some people make lives that are pleasant, enjoyable, healthy, happy, blah, 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 and some people turn their lives into hells. And within a lifetime, it can reverse. And those who have made their lives into some kind of heaven can turn it back into hell. And those who have gone in and can reverse, like the ship's captain. Okay? So, consciousness is the determiner of our place. And we see our place through our consciousness. And the same place with a different consciousness can become a different place. So, it's... It, it's very fluid and dynamic. We think of these things as hard and fixed, but they aren't. And we know this from our own experience. I mean, I'm asking you to sort of, asking all of us to get into the Avatamsic, project this beyond just our conscious, ordinary understanding of the differences in place driven by our consciousness. And you look back in your life and saying, when I was in this place, at this stage of my life, I had a realm that was such and such. Okay, and it was, and I related to so and so, and these were my priorities. I thought were important. This is what got me really upset. This is what I was after, and these were my enemies, you know, and these were my friends, and this is what I was sucking up to, and so on, and so forth. Okay, that was my realm, and it's just like a movie. And all of a sudden, you step out of the movie theater, and you switch, you change your consciousness a little bit, and it realigns. You move to another place. Or right within the same place, you move your consciousness and everything shifts and rearranges again. And people you were in love with, you're no longer in love with. And people you never knew before, you meet. And decisions you might regret, you make. <laughs> and, you know, and so forth. And you keep adjusting and adjusting and adjusting, but there's no fixed abode. We don't have any fixed abode. We are fluid and dynamic, thought to thought, moment to moment. And what Buddhism is talking about is to accept that as reality. Even if you think you have a fixed abode, it's not. Everything's in flux and changing. We're sitting here real comfortably now going on as if everything's kind of set. But the contingencies of what could weigh on us any moment, strike of lightning, an earthquake, a fire, a revolution, a complete crashing of the economy. So you walk out here tonight and every bit of your life that is geared around a certain economic 
income and blah, 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 is completely gone. Or a stroke or a heart attack. Or you walk out and somebody mugs you, shoots you, you're paralyzed. From, you know, that's how fast. But what Buddhism is saying is not only can it change that fast, but within thought to thought, we are changing. You will go out a different person than you came in. So, the hells themselves then become both places where one can abide for a while, and in some cases for a very, very long time, meaning consciousness is unchanged for a long time, or that you can get and change it in a space of a thought. And in order to hear the Dharma, it says, he or she will undergo all of that. Go back. Why do they want to hear the Dharma at this point? What is the Dharma then? Why is the Dharma important? Much less it says all the sufferings in the human realm. So it's saying not time, not suffering, not difficulty, nothing can interfere with this wanting, this desire to hear. Now to hear means not just to hear, okay? It means to absorb, to learn. We say, Shofa, speak Dharma. It sounds like, you know, what you say to the dog, you know, speak, Ralph, speak. And speak Dharma means to, to lecture, to discourse, to explain. Shofa means to explain the teachings. So to, what's this one? Wanfa, mm, to hear. But if shuo means to explain, then what does one mean? Right, so she's she's doing a pictograph. It's a door. And the ear. Yes, the ear. The ear is in the door. And you can open your ear door. <laughs> okay, so this is really good. If you look at the character, the one, uh, the two side pieces are the barroom door. I say barroom door. All you've seen the cowboy movies with a... That's the door, right? Goes both ways. Doors go both ways. You can enter the door and leave the dust, or you can enter enlightenment and return to the dust. And the door is, it's a re, not a revolving door, but it's a door that you can go both ways. And in the door is the ear, right? The ear is in the door. What's the ear doing in the door? Well, in order to hear, you have to unlock the door. Good. See, we're playing with these metaphors here. So you have to unlock the door in order to hear. That's right. This is very good. Even though you have an ear, it doesn't mean you can hear. And you have eyes, but you can't see all the time. Right. Okay, so you have an ear, but you can't hear. So it's in the door because the door is the, the, the liminal, the, 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 the threshold from one to the other. So you say, Dharma doors are limitless. I vow to walk through them all. Okay, you study Dharma doors. You don't study doors. So again, we have to understand, the door is a a means of going from one place to another. It's the means of changing. It's a transformational experience, which means learning. So when you, one, you're learning. You're not just listening, but you're internalizing and thinking it over and walking through to a new space because of that learning experience. 
to hear the Dharma, to listen to Dharma is passive. It's a passive. You, you know, you could sit here and listen to this. But what it's talking about here is to learn it in a transformational way, to hear it in a transformational way. Um, just like you take in food, and as a result of taking in that food, your body, your metabolism, everything changes because of that. It's not a passive event. It's very powerful. As you take in Dharma, the same thing is happening. It's going to the cells. It's going to the neurons. It's going to every part of your consciousness. And it's, it's shifting it. Yes. Um, it's implied, but if you say in order to, to integrate the Dharma, it's a little clunky, but the meaning is there. The meaning is there. So here, to hear meant literally um, you sit at the foot to understand, to stand under. You sit at the foot, and to sit at the foot means I am open, I'm docile, I'm ready to receive. So it's an attitude. It's not like, oh yeah, I went by the monastery on my way to the bar and I heard the Dharma <laughs> coming out the window. That's a different hearing. As opposed to I went in, I sat down, I put my palms together and said, would you please, you know, speak the Dharma, Shwopa. And I listened in a receptive way as opposed to just an accidental way. So this means to, to take it in to understand under and to, uh, I heard Dharma. <laughs> okay. Now, thank you, because sometimes I think I hallucinate, and that confirms that we're all hallucinating. <laughs> okay, so that's the first part. Now, I'm going to come back to this a little more, because you'll remember what provoked this passages that have been coming up. I mean, basically, these passages are saying, come hell or high water, I'm, I'm dharma-bound, I'm bodhi-bound. And then the hell and high water is all these things, the avici hells, the body, the fire, all these things are metaphors for nothing is going to deter me once I've got my mind set on this. I have my eyes on the prize, so to speak, and I will not turn back. Even the hells, even all the sufferings in the human realm, I will not lose sight of what's important. Okay? What am I listening to? It's outside? Okay. If somebody's got some device on, turn it off. <laughs> Thank you. They're outside. They can hear really well. Okay. Why, why is he doing this? Why or she, the Bodhisattva saying all this now? Not just to firm up the resolve, but what, what started all this? You remember in this passage? Right, and the key word, wants to save living beings, the key word was pity. Remember it goes back, this, this pity, this sympathy, this empathy, if you will, rather than pity. Empathy means you feel the same with. Pity is, sometimes can be a little bit top down. I pity you. But empathy means I feel with you. It's pathos with. And he or she then deepens this resolve and says, I will undergo anything. And this is the heart of the Bodhisattva. Why? Because I, I pity, I have empathy for the suffering of living beings. 
And this, this is the earlier part. So, I'm going to come back to that later. Let's go into the next one here. So, together. 王以武力正思维获得此场无死定四等无同四地极无岁七里二说生 so he reflects. Um, again, we have one. Now you see the difference here? Heard principles. He reflects upon the principles after he's heard them. So this confirms what we're saying. Acquires the four dhyanas, the formless samapadis, uh, four others, five penetrations in sequence, then arise, not following their power, does he undergo rebirth. Okay, so he's able to do all this. He also deeply absorbs or integrates, if you want. You know, here we have reflex um, on what he's heard. So that confirms what we've been talking about. It's not just simply listening. Now he's internalizing it and, more importantly, actually practicing it. So you hear, you contemplate, you reflect on, and then you put it into practice. And then the next stage after that, Right, you can have a realization, but there's a, there's a sequencing, there's a bit of a loop here. I hear, I think and over, I contemplate, I put it into practice, and then I evaluate. I evaluate, did it work? How good was it? Was it right on? Was it off? I then, shoshin, correct my steps. And the cultivation process then is to cultivate, change your steps, look back, did I hear it right? Did I understand it right? Because if it didn't come out right, there must be something wrong here. So you, you have to, as the Buddha says, know for yourself. You have to actually implement it and evaluate it as you're going along. You say, well, I heard it. I integrated it. I'm practicing it. And it's, it's really messing things up, but I know it's true. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. If it's really messing things up and creating fun now, then there's something wrong either with your integration or your interpretation of what you heard. So you have to test it. You have to put it into practice and then be willing to admit and acknowledge where it's not in alignment. And that can be both internally looking at your own states and externally looking at the effects it has in a pragmatic way. Because the Dharma is something that should liberate. It should cause the increasingly liberation of the heart and the mind and the opening to joy and uh, bliss and to states of more zizai, to use the word, more self-comfort, more centeredness. And if it's not, then you have to look back. You can't just keep plodding forward. Um, it's not like an ideology that you just keep pushing forward regardless of the consequences. This is why there's a very famous sutta that, um, called the Mango Sutta. Oh, mango. It's not really about a mango. I don't know why it's called the Mango Sutta. But it's called the Mango Sutta, and it's an exchange between the Buddha and uh, his young disciple, who was uh, his son, Rahula. And Rahula's asking, how do you do this? How do you, you know, you reflect upon the principles you heard, and so on and so forth, what is involved? And the Buddha gives him, and it's called the mirror analogy. And he gives Rahula a method whereby Rahula, in everything he says, 
thinks or does, he pauses before to look at it, to gauge his intention. He pauses while he's doing it. In the act of doing it, he steps back and has a mindful awareness of what he's doing so he can see how is this affecting me while I'm doing it and how is it affecting others while I'm doing it. And after it's done, he then again looks in the mirror and the Buddha says, checks the mirror to see how he feels or she feels afterwards and how the effects look play out afterwards. So before, during, and after, there is this constant reflection, this constant taking in of the data and, and weighing it and trying to figure out, is it kusala or ekusala? Is it wholesome or unwholesome? Both in its intent, its effects, and so forth. I'm, I'm summarizing that passage of text, but it's, it's indicating that this is not, oh, I believe it, I heard it, and I'm done. No, it's very dynamic. You constantly have to be checking and balancing, checking and balancing. And what might have been a right and appropriate in one situation is not appropriate in the next situation. So you say, oh, I should be kind and compassionate and I'll always speak kind words. Sometimes people need to hear a little hard talk. They need a little scolding. So if you're always just doing kind, mushy words, that might be appropriate in some situations, but in other situations it's totally adharma. It's not appropriate. It doesn't have the effect. It enables somebody to keep on with their foolishness. Hmm? So I would translate upaya or fambian as appropriate. Not skill and means, but appropriate. What is appropriate for the situation? And then that is measured by, does it, and the Buddha goes through the list. Does it increase your kindness and compassion in others? Does it increase uh, your understanding and insight in yourself and others? Is it wholesome? Does it plan people to plant good roots and, and further their spiritual identity? Is it skillful in that it makes them both happy now and the potential for happiness in the future? And so the whole, there's a whole list the Buddha goes through that you use as a sort of a checklist to determine whether or not this is upaya, this is dharma, this is appropriate. So the, the mirror sutta from the Mango Sutta is a really useful text uh, to get on this first passage. It reflects upon the principles he's heard and continues to, continues to reflect. I suspect, and you read the text, that Buddhas and Bodhisattvas can more and more, through the habituation of this exercising, have to check less and less. It becomes a second nature to do what's appropriate. As the ego is reduced and there's not so much projection going on, then your response becomes more and more appropriate. Less and less do you have to filter out, did I have a sort of second intention here? Was I looking for some kind of thing here? Um, was I, you know, trying to do something that would bring this result to make me look good or, or get me out of looking bad, blah, blah, blah. When that gets down, 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 and that's why teachers can be so fast because there's no mediation of self. They're just like a mirror. They see what's there, they reflect it back, and the response is totally appropriate. In Taoism, this expression is called wu wei, without doing. But what it means is this effortless, direct action. It's first thought and you can trust first thought. So this is a cultivated state that one gets to, but before that, um, and it said actually before the fourth stage of arhatship, you can't trust your own impulses and thoughts and feelings. You have to gauge them from your teacher, from your community, from the Dharma principles. There's a lot, number of things you use to put them into a kind of dynamic checking. But you can't just say, well, I feel, you know, 
Didn't you say I was a Buddha? Yeah, you are potentially. <laughs> potentially being the Buddha and really being the Buddha is a little different. So you have the ability. That's what the, what's important about this. And, and the Mango Sutta is really important. It implies that you have the ability to do this. You can self-discern. You can self-reflect. The only fear is that you won't be honest, but the, even the techniques to keep you honest. And what meditation is largely about in the beginning is creating a field of honesty, a field of integrity that you can observe your own mind unmediated by, you know, the lawyer inside and all these things. So that direct scene of your intentions and so forth, which is part of the first stages of meditation, allows you to do this reflection process. So you got, that's what my teacher always is stressed with. He says, be true, talk true, speak true. You're going to talk to me, you've got you to speak true words, right? Don't, don't embellish it. Don't try to cover something over. We'll make no progress unless you're just speaking true. Even if it's ugly, you've got to get it out there. This is not like a stage show to impress and get applause. You're, you're actually into something very serious about the development of your personality. So therefore, this speaking true, listening to yourself, being true as you evaluate yourself is absolutely essential for this process to work. But over time, it becomes a second nature. This is not unlike um, a passage from the Confucian tradition. And you should know that my teacher was not exclusively a Buddhist. He said, actually, I don't even like that term Buddhist. So, okay, I'll throw it out. He would use Confucian Taoist uh, biblical passages wherever he could to illustrate things. So we often got Confucian illustrations or allusions in our lectures, along with Taoist and along with uh, things from the Bible and so on and so forth. He didn't feel, he said, Buddhism was a teaching of wisdom, it's a teaching of living beings, it's the death of the human mind. Call it that. Don't, you know, don't put the big B up there. Anyhow, so one point when this similar passage was coming up, uh, he would often point to a similar passage in Confucius that talked about this development of your discernment, the development of your wisdom when you're shushing, when you're cultivating. He says, at 15, anybody know this one? What's 15 years old? At 15 years old. Now, this is Confucius. It's not the average 15-year-old. At 15, what? Who knows their Confucianism? I should have asked first and then started it. But anybody up there? <laughs> not penetrate. Okay. Yeah, well, let's, let's not get to 40 yet. And what did he do at 15? He turned off TV. And he traded in all his comic books and his iPhone and iPad. And he set his mind on learning, shui. But shui here doesn't mean like SAT learning, going to school learning. Shui means the study of, of the liberating knowledge. It means both the moral cultivation and the study of the teachings to bring those two together. So Dashwe, the great learning, is referring to this mix of self-cultivation of your moral character, your mind and heart, and the teachings that interact with that. So for him, these were the teachers that had gone. So at 15, he says, I set my mind on that. Okay. I heard somebody quote it. Okay, you know this passage then. What happens next at 30? 
At 30, I stood, what? I stood firm. So for 15 years, I kind of mucked around, which isn't unusual between 15 and 30. But now, you're not 30 yet, are you? Yeah, I know you're 30. You're not 30 yet? Close, you're getting there. So you've got a little time left. By 30, you should be really firm. You know, <laughs> 26, 27, 28, still kind of like uh, like jello that's not quite gelled. Or, you know. But at 30, he stood firm. In other words, he said, I set my mind on it. At 30, I was really solid. There was no way I was going to alter my path anymore. Then at 40, what happens? 40, he says, I was free of doubt. So it took another 10 years between standing firm and then resolving doubts. Now, I've asked Confucians to interpret this for me, and they have trouble. I asked one tonight. And one interpretation, I think the best one, is I was free of doubt, meaning I did not doubt the path I was on. I knew this was the right path. But it doesn't mean that I didn't have doubts about what I was doing, perhaps, doubts about the reliability of my understanding, but I knew I didn't have to doubt that this was a good and true path. At 50, what happens? Yeah. Are you 50 yet? <laughs> <laughs> 50 Tianming yeah 50 is I understood and this is translated as the mandate of heaven or the decrees of heaven which is a bad translation I understood how things work I understand how the nature of reality operates in a, in a very profound way then at 60 now, this is an interesting one. My ear was attuned. Yeah, my ear was attuned. Now, this goes back to the other one we're using with the, the one. It means I could discern true from false, right from wrong, proper from improper, dharma from a dharma. This is, comes on called, in, in Buddhism, the dharma selecting eye. This is called the Confucian selecting ear. So... And it's interesting, in Guan Yin's contemplation, it's the ear organ that is the most profound. Listening to the sounds of the world, there's something in the ear that is profoundly hooks into the, the mind consciousness that's really interesting. So he says his ear was attuned. Now not only did he trust himself, he was free of doubts, he stood firm, and he knew things as they really were, but he had the further, the, the real discernment and this is what made him at this age a good teacher because he could come up, students could come up and he could listen not only to what they were saying but where it was coming from and what they weren't saying. This is the ear attuned. I'll tell you an interesting, this is the way I do, I always digress, so I'm going to digress a little. Um, there is a wonderful book called um, Against the Pollution of the Eye. Interesting title, huh? Against the Pollution of the Eye, meaning capital I, ego. Anybody know the author? Anybody ever hear of the book? You've heard of it? Aha. Uh -huh. So who, do you remember the author? He was a French, Frenchman. 
So we're getting a search here, I can tell. Who's the author? You haven't found it against the pollution of the eye? Jacques Lucerin. Jacques Lucerin. Now I'll tell you the story because it's really interesting. I think this is a very spiritual book. And I would recommend all of you read it. He was a little boy growing up in France um, prior to World War II. And at school he was running and he fell down and he poked a pencil somewhere near his eye. Not in his eye, but and it's, it obviously severed the optical nerve. And he went blind. And he was completely heart crestfallen. And he went home and they went to the doctor and they realized that there was nothing they could do, that he would be blind now for the rest of his life. This happened probably at six years old, seven years old. And his parents were wonderful. They, they refused to say he was handicapped. They said, you will now enter worlds and realms that we couldn't possibly enter because we only use our eyes to see very limited things. But now your ears and other parts of your body will open up and you have to share that with us. You have to teach us what you're learning. So he went completely from a victim handicap mode to the idea of, wow, just a new world of wonder opening to me. And he said that more than anything else saved his life and got him on a path was his parents' reaction to that one event. And so he went on, and the book is basically about the development of his sensibilities primarily through his hearing and his touch, not just his touch this way, but the extended touch, the vibrational touch that he was able to tune into that most of us only pick up dimly. And uh, he got so good at this that he could walk without any cane or dog or anybody helping him. He could pick up density and openness in spaces and work his way through those spaces without bumping into anybody. And he says only when he doubted that would he bump into things. But when he trusted it completely, it never failed him. So he went on, and then you all know during World War II, uh, the Nazis came and occupied France, right? And so there was underground resistance, and one of the strong resistance was the student resistant movement. And he became the leader of the strongest resistant movement of youth, university-type students, during that period. And they put him in charge of vetting everybody who came to join the group. Now they're saying, well, you know, why did they put him in charge of vetting? You know what I mean by vetting, selecting who gets to join or not. Because the Nazis knew about these groups and were trying to infiltrate them as agents to find out what they were doing and then turn against them and turn these people in. So they had to be able to tell, is this person an agent, you know, a, a spy, an undercover agent, or true? And all the other groups got infiltrated except his group. Because his hearing... <laughs> Not only what they were saying, but he could hear the slightest insecure, uh, insincerity, the slightest covering over, the slightest thing off his hearing was so attuned to, he could pick up right away whether they were true or not true. And then later, he got caught, uh, not because of that, because of another thing, and got put in a concentration camp, and he was one of the few to survive that concentration camp. And he says, the only reason I survived was because of my hearing. 
because of his hearing. I won't tell you why. It's a very interesting area. You should read the book. It's absolutely fascinating. But it shows you, in a sense, what sometimes we call spiritual powers are not really sort of esoteric far out. They're the development, unhindered, of sensory apparatus we have at our, but we don't tune it in. Why do we tune it in? Because it's going out in a hundred directions scattered. And so because we can't focus and concentrate, our ears and eyes and so forth have limited capacity to discern. But when you meditate, and you just look at the meditation process, you're getting the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, you're bringing it to center, you are actually developing those organs to be more sensitive, to be more attuned. And because of that, you will start to make choices in your life without consciously doing it because your attunement will pick up on dissonance, resonance, good people, not so good people, and you'll be able to steer more naturally from the meditation only because you've opened up this natural sensibility of the organs, including the ear and so forth. So it's an interesting story. Anyways, the interesting part was at 70, Confucius, this is the last one, so 15, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, he said, I could follow my heart's desires and not transgress what was Jung proper. So this is that state we were talking about. When you cultivate that state, you can, your first impulse is so pure, is so right on because you cultivate yourself that you can trust that and not go wrong. Now this is not necessarily the trajectory of all people who get old. You can't assume when somebody gets 70, they're automatically there. But if you cultivate, not only do you not get old in the infirm way of losing touch, you actually develop wisdom. So wisdom is not necessarily just a product of getting old. Okay? Believe me. You're thinking, well, I don't have to cultivate or do anything here. I'll just get old and get wise. It doesn't happen just getting old. You can get really pretty dumb sometimes you get old. Wisdom is cultivated. And if you follow even the Confucian thing here where he's cultivating his person, cultivating the human, he's cultivating the human. He's not cultivating the divine. He's saying, I'm going to perfect my humanity. That's what he's talking about here. I'm going to get rid of all the flaws and faults and bad habits and only retain what is good and wholesome and virtuous. Dao de. And by doing that, I reach at 70 the point where I can act according to my heart's impulses and not do anything wrong that I can, I can tune and be discerning and be full and happy and so forth. So this is, a, this is a kind of carry of that. Then it says, here the Bodhisattva, going back to our text, acquires the four dhyanas, formless samapadis, four others by penetrations and sequence they arise. What's this talking about? Anybody? It's an actual list. These are levels of, um, how should we say it, a refining and a quieting of consciousness. I mean, I would just give the general what's going on here. The four dhyanas are the first stages of, of this. Uh, then you have formless samapadis. Uh, these are sometimes called the four stations of emptiness. That's one of the terms that's used for them, or they're called the formless samadhis. There's different 
language. I don't want to get spend a whole lot of time on this. It's, it, these are fairly technical. If you understand that if you begin to practice meditation exercises where you're holding precepts, then as you, the mind quiets, and as you get greater control over the thoughts and feelings and emotions and impulses, and you're able not only to discern and sift out and gradually get it quieter and quieter, you will develop then states of consciousness, higher states, you wanna, I don't like that word, but sometimes that's what it's called, higher states of consciousness that are progressively more quiet, more still, more blissful. These are, these are stages where it just gets happier and happier, so much so that people really want to meditate just to enter and stay in these states. So you can actually get kind of attached to this if you get to this. The reason I don't want to go into this too much is that none of us are probably there. You know, even the first or second dhyanas, much less the formless ones, where there's, you know, you get into infinite space, infinite consciousness, uh, nothing whatsoever, and the fourth one being neither cognition nor non-cognition. Okay? <laughs> That's usually not, let's not spend a lot of time there. Okay? Obviously, these are more and more refined states. Historically, if you want to look at it that way, the Buddha went through these with his various teachers. And even when he got to the highest phase, he still realized that this was not full awakening. So from the Buddhist point of view, these are all considered to be really far out, very interesting, um, unnecessary perhaps, but not sufficient. Path that you go through in the refinement of your consciousness. But they are not considered enlightenment. They are not considered enlightenment. They are merely states of elevated, refined consciousness. And they're still within the three realms, desire, form, and formless. Okay? So the Buddha leaves his last teacher after being in the highest stage of this, realizing intuitively this is not it. This is still a state or a realm that has an entry and an exit. So this is what becomes important here. This is not the realization where there is no entry and exit anymore. There's no going and returning without border. This is still something that's entered and left. So sometimes you enter it with the, okay, ready? So if you're in the first, second, third, fourth, down and any of the samadhis, enter. Pretty cool. Time to leave. That's what that is. The three starts the city, this ends the city. So I'm illustrating this graphically. These are meditative states that one enters. Now, in some places, they're also called realms, but now we're going back. Is it a realm or a state of consciousness? Go back to our earlier discussion, it's both. So sometimes these are called heavenly abodes. In the formless, you get into the formless, the formless heavens, and these are actually states that you're reborn into for long periods of time that have, they're in the heavens, but they're also just states of consciousness too. Yes. Why should they enter it in the first place? You don't enter it because you want to. You enter it because by naturally quieting your mind, you enter it. And you enter it more deeply. And it has, you know, sort of demarcations. The more deeply you enter, certain things no longer occur. Coarse thoughts, for example. Now, I want to get specific. Anybody know what I mean by coarse thoughts? 
Yeah, you know, yeah, right. Huh? No, no, no. Well, yes, of course it's false thinking. It's, you know, coarse thoughts are like, I want that food. I want to get a Mercedes. Wow, she's cute. You know, that's coarse thoughts, okay? Coarse thoughts are really, those start to die out and you get, you don't have those coarse thoughts anymore. Now you have more subtle and refined thoughts, but you still have thinking. But there's a point where even that starts to stop and hardly any thought arises. It's not necessarily, well, see, this is the point. These are not necessarily wisdom-producing states. Wisdom comes with awakening. That's why I said they are, these are not considered enlightenment. These are states of consciousness that are very pure, very refined. You could see them as, as yogic kinds of induced states that are very blissful as well. And the Buddha saw that people, when he was studying, entered these states and stayed there because they were so cool. Part of cultivation. It's acquiring a path towards. It's acquiring a path towards. There can be some wisdom and insight that comes with this, but you can also have these without the corresponding because you're attaching to the state. And so you're actually stopping your wisdom. You're limiting it to the state while you're in the state. Ah, good question. How do you know if you're attaching to a state? Sometimes you don't. And that's why you need to check. I'm going back to the earlier process. You check the teachings. So already hearing this passage tonight, you're a little more cautious, aren't you? You could, you know, you could sit there and you're going really blissed out. And then, you know, Chin Wei hits the bell and you think, oh, time's up. It felt like just a minute. And you want to keep sitting. But now having read this text and hearing this, you think, well, wait a minute. What part of me wants to just keep sitting? And why do I want to keep sitting? So in having a teacher, when we would get close to these states, he would at the same time challenge us not to stay in those states, not get attached to them, and bring us back in to, if you want, the worldly, so we could see whether or not we did have wisdom. Because wisdom is not measured by pulling yourself out into uh, an altered reality of this. It's measured by can you maintain equilibrium and insight and discernment while you move about and do the 10,000 things. So that's why in the Sixth Patriarch Sutra he says, the Dasan Mei, the great Samadhi, doesn't have entry or leaving. You don't enter it and you don't come out of it. Limited Samadhis, you enter and leave. So while when I say these are still in the three realms of desire, form, and formless, this is still in the wheel of samsara, still in the wheel of birth and death. They have a period of time, and then they're over, either as a state that you have or as a realm that you're in. Now, they can last longer and so on and so forth, but they're still conditioned, and they have an entry and a leaving, and that's why they're not considered to be unutrous in the Bodhi nor nirvana. And so when the Sixth Patriarch says, the Dasan me, the great Samadhi, you don't enter or leave, you are constantly walking, standing, sitting, lying down, life to life, birth and death. You're constantly in this state. That's going to later come up in this text when it describes the next thing, not following their power, does he undergo rebirth? In other words, he is still able to move beyond these and maintain a state that is not attached to these 
and can be born and die and born and die and still stay centered and still stay with the Bodhi resolve. So in a sense, what you're getting here is, oh, he's gone through the hells. He's gone through all this suffering. Now he's gone into the bliss stuff. And he still doesn't stop there. Now, the Sharangama Sutra describes the highest of one of these states. It's the ninth of the eighth. And that's where the Arhat goes. So if you read, I mean, I'm just saying, if you want to look at another text, what the Sharangama says, an Arhat gets into this ninth level. Beyond the four and the four, eight, there's still a ninth level that seems to be enlightenment. But the Sharangama says, no, it's just another state. And it's stuck. So read the text and you'll see that even at that point, the Buddha exhorts us not to, to satisfy ourselves with these. So in a sense, this text seems kind of funny, but if you see it in the sequence of what's coming before, it's saying the resolve for Bodhi, for full awakening, to save and enter the world and save living beings, the hells and the worldly things can't stop, but not even these will stop. And you see in the Shurangama Sutra where you get into the, what's called the 50 skanda demon states, some of these are the results of entering these states. And with these come these various, sometimes these powers, the heavenly eye, the heavenly ear, spiritual penetrations, knowing others' thoughts. And what does the Shurangama say? Did Hunkshire go over this part with you at all? Are you talking about the Shurangama? Right, but did you talk about the Shurangama But what, what is the rejoinder in the 50 skanda demon states? As we go through, as you cultivate into these deeper quietudes and stilling of your thoughts, you go through the five skandhas. You enter certain states in, your, in the body, in your feelings, in your thoughts, and so forth, up to consciousness. There's more and more refinement going on and more and more far out things happening as you do that. You can know others' thoughts. You can know others' past lives. You can have the heavenly ear and the heavenly eye and so forth, getting these as you go through. But what's the Shangama saying? Right. Don't get attached. Don't think, oh, I'm arrived. I'm a Buddha. I'm a sage. So the Shangama says, if you see these as just natural evolving of your spiritual development, then you will see them forth the bear and you will pass and you will move on. Because these are states that you go through as you purify, as you become. But if you think, I have something, I've attained something, I'm special, I have this power, you'll get stuck and you'll fall. Pride goeth before the fall. So the, the, the hubris here is thinking, I now have something. Now you can see this isn't wisdom. Wisdom doesn't have me getting wise. So I'm moving around a bit, but it's really important to understand the dynamic of this because somebody could get up to this passage and there's a lot of people that actually cultivate because they want to get these states of consciousness. Believe me. I mean, you can look at the back of any sort of spiritual New Age magazine and hidden, either hidden or explicit, is that you will get these powers in these states. Sometimes with machines. They, they offer this as an enticement. This is one of the allures of the meditation. You'll get altered states of consciousness, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, if you look at the real deep teachings of Dharma, 
there's cautions about that. It's not saying they're false. It's saying it's part of your development. Just don't stop there. Don't think it's special because as soon as you do, you'll get stuck. To give you an example, the one I mentioned before, I told this story. Dharma Master Shuyun, Empty Cloud, who was one of my teacher's teachers, the one that lived to be 119, 120 years old, um, amazing cultivator. When he began, he began with the idea that these were it, these dhyanas Dhyana, and samapatis. And so he went deep into the mountains in China and lived in a cave. And there were other cultivators in the caves around there all doing this practice. And they would sit for longer and longer periods of time, unmoving. Not like us. You know, like on Friday night, we get to 40 minutes, and, people, and then they go, I hear the bell, oh, nirvana, wow, man, I cross their legs, you know, it's like, free at last. It's not like, you know, there they sit. How long do they sit? They sit for an hour, they sit for two hours, they sit for 10 hours, they sit for a day, they sit for a week with their legs crossed, not thinking, Oh, I got to have sweet potatoes or jelly. No, there's like no thoughts there. So he got into this very deeply. He got into it one time, and I've told the story before. He had a sweet potato, a yam, that someone gave him. And so he put it, he had a little pot with water and some wood, and he put it down, and he's cooking the yam, and he thought, oh, this is stupid just sitting here watching the yam cook. I'll, I'll sit in meditation while the yam cooks. So he went into meditation waiting for the yam to finish. And this was on, you know, one day. And about seven days later, everybody and his friends said, you know, we haven't seen Shu Yun for a while. We should kind of, they were always checking on each other. Maybe he got sick or something. So they go in, and there he's sitting, and there's all this mold coming out of the pot from the yam that's been now cooked and gotten rotten, and he's still sitting. You know, just quietly. And so... They say something to him and nothing happens. They get the bell. And they go, and the shooting goes, oh, lunch must be ready. And he looks down and there's this moldy yam. And he didn't even realize, he didn't realize that he'd entered this for seven days. Now, he was going along like, and most of us, if you came to me and said, you know, I went back to San Jose Sunday night, I started sitting, and by Friday, my mother knocked on the door and said, what's up? You go, is it time for school? He wasn't scared. He didn't know to be frightened of the right stuff. He wasn't scared. None of them were scared. He, no. He was happy. He was happy. His, his legs didn't hurt. His ankles didn't hurt. His breathing had gone way, way down. And was going down. He was so happy. And his complexion was radiant. It wasn't like something to be afraid of. I mean, if you had a bottle, if I said, hey, by the way, this stuff that I'm drinking will put you in Shuyan state for a week. If no troubles, no worries, no cares, nothing will bother you. You'll be so happy. You know, cheers. <laughs> Gone big. <laughs> right? If I bottled that and put it on the market and did an IPO, whoa, Mark Zuckerberg would look like a, you know, a, a poverty-stricken person. So 
you know, it wasn't like he was miserable. He was very, very happy. But the point being, he was doing this. Now, to finish the story, he was doing this and getting progressively more and more into this. And an older monk came wandering through and just checking on everybody. And he says, oh, who are you? I'm Shuya, and what are you doing? I'm doing this. What, you know, I've done, well, I sat for a week and everything. He says, I really feel sorry for you. And Shuya said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, you're just entering states and attaching to them. Haven't you read the Sharangama Sutra? He said, no, I never heard of it. He said, well, I'll tell you, you better start reading that, or you'll be up here in the mountains turning into an attached such and such. And Shuyan then began to read the Sharangam and said, oh, my God, <laughs> I once was lost and now I'm found. <laughs> he realized, finally, that what he was doing, although it was far out and really incredible, was just entering and going after these states and realized that he was not going to penetrate and resolve, fulfill his Bodhi resolve because he was just getting to this. So that's a, a case in point, a story that illustrates, you know, that these are presented not as sort of either as ultimate, for sure, but even as possibilities of deterring the bodhisattva from his vow. So that's why they're done in this sequence. So he reflects on and he doesn't follow their power, and he doesn't undergo rebirth. Now, what does it mean he doesn't undergo rebirth following their power? Because their power is to bring you back into samsara. It's not nirvana. This is really... In other words, you follow desire and craving and anger and so forth, you'll be reborn. Okay, duh. That's the teaching. But you don't you often hear, if you follow these, you'll also be reborn. If you follow the power of the disease, you'll be sucked back into the triple realm again. You'll be reborn on the power of this karma of seeking these states. So how then does the bodhisattva get reborn? Remember? Because the bodhisattva enters the realm again and again and again. They're, they enter on, they're reborn on the power of their bows, not on the power of this. They're not reborn on the power of their karma or their ignorance, which is the most case, nor even their desires for these blissful states. They're reborn on the power of their bows. And that's a different kind of rebirth. And that's the rebirth that is not rebirth. That means they come and go without border. It doesn't mean, nirvana doesn't mean the end of existence. It means existence no longer is the problem. And they don't ob obliterate life. They obliterate the impediments to awakening. It's the cessation of that. Now they can come and go, entering this realm, leaving this realm, going to other realms. And you see this throughout the text. They come and go freely. Well, it must mean they're obviously born. The Buddha is born in the world, manifests, goes through, blah, 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 and manifests manifest leaving. And you read the text and you say, well, did he die or not? Yes and no. The sixth patriarch, when he's about to pass, and they say, okay, I think I've done what I'm going to do next week. I'm going. Where are you going? <laughs> I'm going. I'm like, the, the big going. And all the disciples cry and he says, gosh, what have I been doing all these years? Now you're all crying? You didn't get anything? You didn't understand? I know where I'm going. Why, why are you crying? Because you don't know where I'm going and you don't know where you're going. I know where I'm going. No problem. There's no time I came. There's no time I go. Now, this is not just, I could say that, but I wouldn't mean it. <laughs> I'd say, I'm dying. Oh, you know. He didn't do that. So it's like one disciple didn't cry. And he said, that disciple has been doing a little work. Not bad. Everybody else was crying. So when they talk like this, this is not sort of 
bravado, macho, I'm not afraid of death. It means they do know where they're going. And they're going because they're going on the power of vows, not because of the power of karma. So we have to get a different understanding of the Aushong Posa, ending birth and death. It doesn't mean you go out to some sort of, you know, Florida retirement place where you live forever. Or you die eternally and you're not. It means it's no longer a problem. You come and go according to your vows. And so there's not joy at your coming and there's no tears at your leaving. It's just like going to bed, wake up, start again. They're continually doing the Buddha's work and following the thought. That's why this passage is, works this into it. Okay, well, I think we're sort of, although I said there is no time and place, we're out of time here. Um, we could go into the next section, but I'll leave that. I'm sure we'll be back next week explain more. And I was going to read to you another passage tonight, but I always bring more than I actually get to. It's because I digress so much. So, Anyway, um, any final questions? Quick ones? That's good. Any announcements? Who went on the hunger walk today? How was it? It's good. Can you say a few words about it? And tell what people what it was? Mm. And the, the point of the walk was not just a pilgrimage walk, but Good. So that was the that was the walk today. Great. Oh, there's one in San Jose tomorrow. Similar. Where does it? We have flyers outside. Okay. So you can check on the flyers. Okay.
So if I just went to the Zen Center, I'd get a free lunch without work? No, I'm just <laughs> Okay, any other announcements? Any? Mm-hmm. Meditation Roundtable. That's 7.30 here. And I thought that was for young people. Right? Youngish. Under 40. Between 18 and 40, you're welcome. Okay. Youngish. I'm not even close. (laughs) At 40, I was excluded. (laughs) Okay, we're going to do the transference. Yes. Ah, okay. Okay, we'll do the transference in English, I think, right? <laughs>